A candy-colored clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is alright I close my eyes Then I drift away Into the magic night I softly say A silent prayer Like dreamers do Then I fall asleep to dream My dreams of you In dreams I walk with you In dreams I talk to you In dreams you're mine All of the time with you ever In dreams, in dreams But just before the dawn I awake and find you gone I can't help it, I can't help it Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Wrapped in Podcast. This episode 14, we're going to talk about part 14 of Twin Peaks, The Return. We are the dreamer. This is J.R. Parker. Uh, with us this week, we've got Kyle King. How are you doing, Kyle? I am. Uh, hang on a second. I am. I am well. Sorry about that. I was, I was just uh, typing a private Facebook message to Sarah Palmer making an unsolicited sexual overture. And I know that's a little over the line, but I mean, worst she can do is say no, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I would definitely uh, not send her any dick pics. <laughs> um, I think that would turn out really poor. I mean, nobody should do that in the first place, right. especially unsolicited. But yeah, I can only imagine it turn out turning out very, very, very badly. Okay, good tip. Good advice there. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> also with us, Jeff Fallis. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I had a weird experience. Uh, yesterday, I was taken to a realm, like a black and white realm, uh, and I met a, a very large man, and he gave me this device. It was kind of looked like origami with like a human finger sticking out of it. 
and the smoke arose. And then I looked above my head and it basically showed me key scenes from the first 14 episodes of Twin Peaks, The Return, and one scene, which I'm not allowed to talk about, uh, from episode either 15, 16, 17, or 18. And I felt, I came back from the experience, I felt like I understood everything, but then it all kind of faded away like a dream. I couldn't remember if my uncle had been there or not. And um, I think I'm I'm still going to have to rewatch all the episodes, I think, to make sense of it all. Yeah, well, you know, every I think... A lot of Twin Peaks fans are going to get uh, porthole televisions installed in their ceilings. Yes, absolutely. Uh, to to uh, watch watch the show uh, in the future. That's going to be the only way to watch it on like whatever 4K Blu-ray in like 2018 or something when this is released. So exactly with Raybox the, edition, the, the porthole edition. Yes, yes. Well, what I did this past week is watch the first like 20 seconds of every episode up to this current episode. Uh, to catalog uh, the colors, color, color, color. Uh, the flashes, uh, and the differences between the Rancho Rosa uh, little logo that appears at the beginning of every episode. And in our last episode, I mentioned that uh, the ring in that symbol was green, which was different. Uh, and some folks who listened to our episode commented that, well, they change it every week. No big deal. Uh, and I, anyway, I went back and I'm going to post on our, uh, Facebook page, uh, it, all of the information for episodes one through 14. Turns out the green ring was new. No previous ring had been green, gray, red, gray, bluish gray, black, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that had all appeared before, but, but green was an innovation in episode 13. So we'll go ahead and talk about episodes 14, Rancho Rosa symbol. This one was different. It was singular. We've not seen this ever before. Here we've got, a black ring with a completely faded out black and white cloud background. It's never been so faded out in any previous episode. Uh, and what we see is the ring in which the RR symbol appears goes completely black. It flashes completely black. It's never done that before. I can just tell you, trust me, those first 13 episodes all looked pretty similar with some slight variations. The completely black flash I thought was significant. Uh, who knows what it means, uh, but I feel obligated to report it to our listeners. That, that's just excellent detective work. I love that. I don't know what it means, but I'm going to fixate on it the way I used to fixate on the traffic light in 1991. Yeah, and I was just settling in. I thought you were going to spend like 25 minutes going through a very specific <laughs> description of what all the colors were on all the Rancho Rosa things. And that was pretty much going to be the podcast. So I was getting ready to just relax. Yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> that, that'll be episode 14.5. <laughs> uh, so after that and the opening sequence uh, where it looks like uh, Listening Post Alpha is not depicted since uh, Bobby has told us that Listening Post Alpha has been completely destroyed. They took everything away later on in the episode. Uh, so it's unclear what that structure at the top of the mountain is in the opening sequence that we talked about last week briefly. Uh, we start out in Buckhorn at the Mayfair Hotel. It looks like it's the morning of October 1st. Uh, Gordon, Call, Gordon Cole is calling Twin Peaks. Uh, they, they immediately recognize each other. Uh, <laughs> Gordon asks, or he says something about, have you, have you been there the whole time? And then Lucy explains that no, she goes home at night with Andy and, uh, they even went on a vacation to Bora Bora. And Dave, 
David Lynch, Gordon Cole, just holds his phone and stares into space while, while she's explaining this. It's fantastic. Uh, a really beautiful moment. Uh, and they eventually, Lucy connects him to Sheriff Truman. Uh, Sheriff Truman informs uh, Cooper, uh, not Cooper, Gordon Cole, rather, uh, that there's been this development, uh, namely the pages from Laura Palmer's diary uh, that suggests that there are two Coopers. That's interesting because there's some omission there, but uh, Gordon, he can't comment, but he's very, very appreciative of what he's just doing. Uh, it was just beautiful to me that they just dive right in. You got, uh, you know, you've got Gordon and you've got Lucy and just boom, right out of the gate. You got this together. Um, just before I move on a little bit, the, the traffic light is visible outside uh, the Mayfair Hotel uh, during the daytime. The signal remains on red, which is the same that it was on the last time we saw it the night before. Uh, and just fair warning for all concern, uh, earlier this evening I watched the season two premiere again, so I'm going to be talking about that a lot. Uh, and, and just a reminder that the red light come, come, come. Uh, crept into that scene as well as it as it did a lot in the original series. It appeared during Cooper's explanation of his theory of the crime on Laura Palmer's death. Uh, there's some other stuff from that scene that becomes important later on. There also, since we've got Lucy here, um, I had forgotten this, but when Mike came into the station and talked to Lucy, uh, it was very, very much like the scene earlier in season three that seemed so odd and has had no subsequent follow-up of the insurance agent coming in wanting to talk to, to, to Harry Truman. Very much along the same lines. And, and in that same episode in season two at the beginning, Jacoby described Laura as two people. And, of course, at the time we took that as being metaphorical, and it may have been, but we're now at a point where Everything is literally two people, uh, right down to the point of Lucy describing the fact that uh, when they went on vacation, they went to Bora Bora, a place so nice they named it twice. That's great. Yeah, and I, I love this scene. I love that Lucy and Gordon recognize each other right away after, I don't know, maybe 20 years. Uh, I guess both of them are, are difficult people to forget, but I love that kind of detail. And I also love the audio design that long silence with Gordon just holding the phone as Lucy apparently continued to fill Gordon in on, you know, she and Andy's vacations and so forth. Um, but yeah, as you said, Jared, there's a lot of omissions here. And I found it curious that Truman only told Cole about the missing pages, the two Cooper's message. Uh, Truman also could have, you know, if the timeline meshes with this, shared with Cole that Cooper's room key from room 315 of the Great Northern had been mysteriously returned as well as perhaps some of the info about Jackrabbit's Palace, Major Briggs, that seems to tie in as well with with Cooper. Um, so, you know, maybe uh, I assume this was as you did, you know, kind of the morning of October 1st. But linearity is sometimes, as we talked about last week, very much in question. Uh, but I, uh, you know, Cole can't comment anyway, but I did find kind of Frank's kind of unforthcomingness a little bit uh, odd. And then I found it interesting, Kyle, that you mentioned the insurance agent who I think appeared in the first episode of I think that's right. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, And I think has not been seen of or heard of since. Uh, and that's a kind of a forgotten, almost kind of throwaway scene, but one of my favorite kind of uh, conspiracy theories uh, about the new season, there was an article about the insurance agent in entertainment weekly, maybe two or three weeks ago 
arguing that he's going to end up being the key to this whole thing. I recommend it to our uh, listeners to to check out. Uh, I won't uh, go into it, but yeah, it's great. And it's just, it, it, it was uh, um, either that scene was, you know, going to recur or that character is going to show up or it's, it's shuffled out of the, the narrative or, but yeah, the, the insurance agent reappearing in episode 18 and being the key to it all. I, I that wouldn't surprise me either. We, we move from this scene uh, to this, uh, what appears to be a command center that Gordon and Albert have set up in the Mayfair hotel. Uh, I mean, they, they've got like multiple like uh, shipping containers that contain like mainframe computers or something. I mean, that's like, they, like, yeah, they, like yeah. the, the, wa- where did they get all this equipment from the plane? You know, like where did this, they loaned from? the Watson supercomputer from IBM. Uh, he's like playing chess against Gary Gasparov in the, in the, in the, in the corner. Uh, they're flashing lights everywhere. There are all kinds of weird, uh, satellite imagery on, uh, appearing on the screens. It's, it's hilarious. Anyway, the, the, the occasion here is, Albert is giving Tammy her blue rose briefing and the exchange uh, recalls Desmond's debrief of Sam Stanley after he meets Lil uh, in Firewalk with me. And some, some of the dialogue is, is nearly the same. Tammy, who does not sit like a human, it, it's insane watching her talking to Albert. She's like leaning back on the side in her chair uh, in a way that looks neither comfortable nor natural at all. Um, and of course, the unnaturalness of her movements continues throughout. I think it's the opinion of most of Raptin podcasts <laughs> that Christabel is in fact a reptile, uh, in, in some sort of human skin suit. And, you know, it, it's maybe it works for her character. Uh, but uh, she's just, it's really a, a shame to imagine. Uh, I just don't think anyone could convince another human being that they were a human if they acted like her. And I, I, uh, I was anyway, going to argue but, and be contrarian that I th- actually thought that her oddities as an actress s- were suitable. The closer we're getting to kind of Blue Rose content here, I kind of bought that she would know what a tulpa is, be kind of unfazed by the idea of disappearing doppelgangers in 1975 and so forth. And the, her oddnesses, weirdness kind of worked for me under these limited conditions. So I would, as you, you know, I, I'll be the, uh, the contrary voice here. Yeah. I would much rather it be Sam Stanley, right? How awesome would it oh, be yeah, if it were Sam totally. Stanley? He would yes. just have, he would have poured his coffee <laughs> all over all that expensive equipment while checking his watch, you know? Right. 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 Or he would have just tortured everybody or sneezed on everything. Um, yeah. Yeah. He could, he could be the Jack Bauer of Twin Peaks. So anyway, it, he tells us, Albert tells the story of Lois Duffy, uh, who was found when uh, Cole and Jeffries as field agents were investigating a murder in Olympia, Washington in 1975. Uh, apparently they found Lois Duffy on the floor, shot, mortally wounded, and then another woman standing over the gun, over her with a gun. The woman dropped the gun and the dying woman's last words were, I'm like the blue rose. She dies and then she disappears. Uh, somehow I, I, they were able to prosecute and actually imprison this woman. I find that pretty hard to believe given the, the evidence that she had committed a murder had just disappeared into another plane of existence. It was the seventies, man. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I guess, you know, juries were really good for prosecutors, 
uh, back then. And uh, I also think that it could be the same legal theory that allowed them to to prosecute Bill Pullman slash Balthazar Getty in Lost <laughs> Highway. After, yeah, you know, no, they, absolutely. If, if you can prosecute Lois Duffy for murdering Lois Duffy, who then disappeared, well, that makes sense in the context of the same legal system that said, oh, Bill Pullman has turned into Balthazar Getty. Well, I guess we better turn him loose from death row. Well, what are we going right. to do? I mean, I, it's, I guess that's those, those are the rules. You, you got to change into another person in order to escape culpability. If you killed somebody who right, looks just right. like you and they disappear, you know, you're still on the hook. And and if you kill a cop and that cop is bad, you can then become a cop. That's okay. You're okay with that. We've established <laughs> That's that. right. That's right. That's true. I, I guess, you know, if you can if you can indict a ham sandwich, you can indict a blue rose, right? That makes sense. <laughs> um very nice. So anyway, uh Tammy figures out that he, he Albert questions her and you know, she identifies that the real mystery here is the blue rose. He asks her about that, and she says the dying woman was not natural. Conjured. What's the word? Because people say what's the word all the time. Uh, a topa. And I got some stuff to say about topas. Should I just take this over now? Yeah, I know. You're, you're on the – yeah, Jeff is on the certified the topa, topa beat, beat this yeah. week. Um, a topa – this is, was interesting, uh, and it's sort of to use – a sim- most simple definition: A tulpa is a conjured being or object created through sheer spiritual or mental discipline. Uh, and there was an article I saw cited. You know, perhaps it was the first thing that came up when you Google tulpa. But there was an article from last year on the website SavageMinds.org, and there were a couple of sentences in that I thought were interesting. Um, Tulpas are understood to be distinct sentient beings with their own personalities, inclinations, and relative autonomy. Through various active and passive processes known as forcing tulpamancers, who are people who create tulpas, spent hours solidifying their impressions, their creations as something more than just an ordinary inner voice. Um, and uh, the idea, you know, I think is common in Tibetan Buddhism as well as in Mark Frost's beloved Theosophy. Uh, and it's become more common in, in pop culture too recently. There were two actually Topa-based episodes of The X-Files, one in 1999 and one in the kind of uh, uh, short season last year in 2016. There's also the kind of – some people called the, the Slender Man phenomenon, the kind of meme on the creepypasta website that – you know, two adolescent girls said they killed, you know, someone and, uh, a couple of years ago to, you know, please slender man. Um, but, uh, Annie Besant, who is the theosophist whose ideas were influential on some of Frost's uh, occult thinking, uh, involving Twin Peaks, she categorized tulpas in this way, uh, in a book, Thought Forms. She said there were three classes of tulpas. Forms in the shape of the person who creates them, forms that resemble objects or people and may become ensouled by nature spirits or by the dead, and forms that represent inherent qualities from the astral or mental plane, such as emotions. Um, dimensions of tulpas here uh, opens up all sorts of metaphysical cans of worms for Twin Peaks and might shed some light on Dougie's possible origins. Uh, presumably, Doppelkooper manufactured the tulpa Dougie in his own image in a kind of, uh, you know, blasphemous, uh, uh, act of creation that would seem like it would line up with the first of Byzant's categories. Um, the question is raised what we know about the Duffy case though. Is there a distinction between the more manufactured Tulpa doppelgangers like Dougie and presumably one of the Lewis Duffy's? And is there, you know, a distinction between that and 
sort of the lodgeborn doppelgangers like Doppel Cooper himself. Um, he seems more like that kind of more archetypal organic uh, shadow self that Hawk speaks of in season two. Um, I was also curious about Besant's third category of tulpas who might represent an inherent astral or mental quality, a state of being an emotion that brought to mind Rosenfeld's Albert Rosenfeld's definition of Bob uh, that he gave uh, after Leland died. Perhaps he's just the evil that men do. Um, so I think that's tulpa beat. Yeah. And you, you had me at Tibet, uh, but for me, the thing that I thought about was, uh, with the disappearance of the Lois Duffy who was shot, that, that suggested to me, uh, that she might have been wearing the owl ring, which is interesting timing because we know from the secret history that Richard Nixon had the owl ring at one point, but he clearly didn't have it all the way up to the time of his death in 1994 because it was with Teresa Banks and Laura Palmer and Annie Blackburn in the late 80s. Uh, so the timing on this is kind of, kind of cool, uh, because of course, Nixon resigned in 1974, and the first Blue Rose case was in 1975. And if, as uh, John Bernardi of the 25 Years Later site supposes, it's the case that the person with the owl ring has a rise followed by a fall, as we see with Jack Parsons and and with Richard Nixon in this case, um, you know, it makes sense that the mid 1970s, when he was forced from office by Watergate, would be the point at which he lost the ring. And in fact, after he resigned in August of 1974, that following fall in October, uh, he was forced into surgery uh, by phlebitis that uh, if he hadn't had surgery, he was he was likely going to die. So, I mean, you're talking about his literal low point in his life. And of course, phlebitis is an inflammation of a vein and it can be caused by inactivity, including, for instance, the inactivity caused by paralysis, such as the paralysis that is often caused in the left arm of those who wear the owl ring. So there's a lot of a lot of moving parts that are coming together in a pretty cool way by the idea of the owl ring being with Lois Duffy in 1975. I know no one says it's there, but the disappearance at least leads, you know, lends itself to that supposition uh, and the timing works out pretty well. Yeah, that's really interesting, Kyle. And I did not go back and look in the, I have to go back and look in the secret history and see when the last time a mention is, I guess, in terms of the chronology, when Nixon does have uh, the owl ring, but I feel like he had it. Right. Like up until some of those scenes with Dougie Milford that take place like in like 73 or something. So I feel like he still had it at that point. That was kind of what I thought with the, because it was 1973 when you had the Jackie Gleason, Dougie Milford, yeah. Richard Nixon going to see the alien scene. I assumed he still had it then. So you know, you're talking 73, 74, 75, pretty quick succession there of events. Yeah. And, and, you know, Kyle, I just want to mention that, uh, Nixon's resignation in August of 1974 is in universe. We don't have to reference anything outside of the Twin Peaks materials because in the autobiography of FBI Special Agents Dale Cooper, on August 1st, 2 p.m., he recorded, have mailed all my Nixon buttons back to the White House. Yeah, and, and we also have in the secret history that uh, I believe Dougie Milford wrote an editorial about it, a scathing editorial about uh, about uh, Nixon being forced from office, one of the few members of of the press corps who, who was in fact – against Nixon resigning. Yeah, no, and, and Dale Cooper's father, we, we will recall, uh, made a, 
a brisk business selling impeached Nixon posters. Right. I think there, there may be some <laughs> other references to Nixon in the autobiography, but I'll mention. And I, we're gonna, I'm going to talk about the autobiography later, where it's actually you know directly pertinent. I think to a particular scene. That's great because I actually was also looking at it today to see what Cooper was doing in 1975 to see if there was any reference to Lois Duffy or anything like that. Like I felt like yeah, that was. I, I love that you were also. Yeah. Uh, consulting the canon well yeah and you know there's there's a a particular point i believe it's in 1974 no yeah no no yeah late 1974 where uh, cooper does an experiment to see what happens if he stops sleeping and he he makes a recording every hour Uh, at 11 p.m he records 99 bottles of beer on the wall 99 bottles of beer all is wheel Ellipsis. Well, I do not like large bugs with wings. Wow. There you go. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. That. And, and by the way, that. That's the water right there. Eddie, how, yeah. How did you have time to do that and check the Rancho Rosa symbol at the beginning of every episode? And and B. Uh, and again, since I, I cited the uh, twenty five years later site, uh, Eileen Michaels over there had had posited a very interesting idea just in passing that Lois Duffy, the original Lois Duffy, might have been the frog bug girl from nineteen fifty six, which I think makes as much sense as any other explanation that we've heard. And the timing is better than Sarah Palmer, I would assume, although we don't know. Duffy's Correct. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. As as to how I have all the time, I'm just having my tulpa do it. <laughs> right. Um, tulpas don't need sleep. So, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so so your the the Parker Ganger was manufactured for the purpose of watching the opening Rancho Rosa symbol and reading the, that's the right. autobiography of Special and Agent you know, Dale Cooper. The, the okay. other thing that Tulpa is going to rebel against you and cause some problems, Jerry. You got to give it something else to do. You got to take care of your Tulpa. It's one thing I learned from my research. You got to treat your Tulpa well. You can't neglect it. One of the things that. Uh, it occurred to me is that Lois Duffy say, or her, or her tulpa is saying, I'm like the, the blue rose. It's kind of like a more poetic version of Dougie Jones saying, that's weird. Remember <laughs> right before he died in the black lodge. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, he, he, he might have had the same, same ability to, uh, comment in a effective way. Um, at some point, you know, Ken is not with us. He appears to be in Europe or some other made up place. He, he is recording, uh, an addition to this podcast. I have a feeling that this episode is going to be about six or seven hours long. So, uh, yes. And I'm not yes. exactly sure, not having listened to, to Ken's insert, where it will go. Um, so it's more likely than not that's going to be part 14.5. You know, he, he had some comments here about coffee time, which is what Gordon says when he enters after Albert briefs, uh, Tamara about the blue rose. And he made some comments about a cream after a Marniac based cream liqueur after dinner called Kasanyak, which is like Bailey's, but brandy based. It's not awful. But he noted in the course of talking about this that it's available in, sa- in Sacto from Total Wine and Spirits. Ka- Ken is in my town. He's stalking me right now. Uh, I, maybe he's working with my Tulpa, uh, but there's no way he would have that information uh, while he would be in uh, Europe. I, I really don't know what else to say. And I think some of these comments um, are from the actual Ken. Some of, the, of them are from his uh, Tulpa. Um, 
some of the yeah, yeah so that's definitely it, that there's it's unclear which one might be stalking you in Sacramento and which one might be in the place called Europe right now but there 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 might be multiple topos yeah. involved as well which ups the ante right so anyway back to the scene Gordon comes in with coffee then Diane comes in uh, after a really uh, awkward moment where a window washer comes and uh, squeaks the window which uh, really sets off Gordon's you know hearing aid apparatus. Uh, and I was just going to say, go ahead. that window washer looked like a ninja to me at he first. He did, too. I uh, thought he was going to attack. <laughs> I did, too. And I, I did take it as further kind of indication that something, you know, something bad might happen to Gordon. I took it as a, a moment oh, no, of Gordon's dead. Gordon's dead. Gordon's absolutely dead. He's deader than Abraham Lincoln. No way he's making it to the end of episode 18. And I could totally see David Lynch having a ninja uh, disguise a window washer, kill himself off in episode 14. So, but yeah, but I, it, it as it was, it was just a weird little moment, but yeah, I was, I, it, it made me worried about, about Gordon. For some reason, it made me think of the guy who moonwalked across the hall in Twin Peaks high school. That guy's lost some weight working as a window washer now in Buckland, right. South Dakota. Right. So Gordon asked Diane about the last night she saw Cooper. Diane, of course says, fuck you. Uh, she doesn't want to talk about it, but she finally admits that Cooper did, in fact, talk about Major Briggs. Albert then tells Diane that they thought Briggs died 25 years ago, but actually he died in Buckhorn days ago. And then we get one of the big reveals of this episode. She references the ring with the inscription to Dougie from Janie E. Turns out Janie E. is Diane's estranged sister uh, who lives with a man named Douglas Jones who went by Dougie in Las Vegas, but she's been out of contact him with them for several years uh, based on their estrangement. Uh, Gordon then calls the Las Vegas, Las Vegas field office, tells the lead agent there that he wants him to give top priority to locating Dougie Jones and says that Dougie's wanted in connection with a double murder. And after, uh, and, and, and well, and then, then there's this amazing bit where the underling of the lead agent in Las Vegas who, uh, who, when he got this call from Gordon Cole, it was a big deal. Like the guy had to like button his coat to take the call. Uh, and then after the call, his underling says that, you know, there, 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 there's so many like 18 Douglas Jones in, in Las Vegas. How are we going to find which one it is? And the guy goes, that's what we do in the FBI. It's fantastic. Right. Right. It's right. Great. Yeah. And that that guy was the actor who played Randall Headley. Uh, I think his name's Jay Ferguson, and he plays one of my favorite characters, Stan, in the later seasons of Mad Men. Uh, and then also a little, yeah. And I thought just you know, again, a little brief, almost throwaway scene, just enhanced by this you know touch of bizarreness and this great performance by Ferguson and the other guy too. Um, but I also noted on the wall a photo of Eisenhower in Headley's office. And I also believe that there is a photo of Eisenhower on the wall, the Philadelphia office in Cole's remembered dream about Philip Jeffries uh, that we're about to get to. So I thought that was a nice little small detail I noticed. Yeah, that's that's just beautiful. Uh, but in defense of the guy who's, who's wondering how they're going to find him, Gordon not very helpfully says, yeah, we're looking for a guy named Douglas Jones, which is a pretty damn common name. And he doesn't happen to mention, oh yeah, he has a wife named Janie hyphen E, which you'd think would narrow down the list of suspects considerably. And he should all, well, I guess he, no, he doesn't know this yet. Okay. never mind. Go ahead. Oh, we know we do. Cause it's Jane. It would be Janie Evans. I assume Janie. Yeah. E, that's what yeah, I, that's, that's what I took Evans it to me. Is, yeah. 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 So, uh, 
after Diane leaves the room, Gordon tells Albert and Tammy about this phone conversation that he had with Frank Truman. Then he explains that he had another dream about Monica Bellucci. Uh, it, it's a, he, so he, as he recounts the dream, we start to see it in black and white. Gordon was working a case in Paris when Monica contacts him and they meet at a cafe. Uh, Cooper was there, but Gordon couldn't see Dale's face. And you see Dale Cooper with his button on or with his pin on his lapel up here. And he kind of fades out a little bit. And Gordon says that, uh, Monica used what, uh, an ancient phrase, you're like the dreamer who dreams then lives inside the dream. Gordon tells Monica Bellucci that he understood. And she said, who is the dream, but who is the dreamer? Then Monica directs Gordon, Gordon's attention behind him. Gordon turns around and proceeds to see the scene in fire walk with me when Cole Rosenfeld and Cooper are met in the Philadelphia office by Philip Jeffries. And Philip Jeffries says, who do you think that is there pointing at Cooper? And then we switch to Gordon right here in the room. And he says, damn, I hadn't remembered that. Then Albert realized that he had forgotten that event as well. This this is just beautiful. I just, I love this scene. Uh, Just a quick uh, uh, color moment here. Diane's wearing her green sweater, her yellow earrings, her red bracelet, her yellow bracelet. She's carrying her red, yellow, and green handbag, and she pulls out a green lighter. Uh, as far as her, the revelation about her being Janie E.'s sister, I don't know what I believe about Diane and Janie E. I know I don't believe what Diane said. Some part of that is false or is omitting a really critical detail, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not buying, uh, what Diane is saying at this point. And, and when Gordon quotes Monica Bellucci from his dream, he doesn't quote her exactly. We see the dream and her saying it, and then we see him repeating it to Albert and Tammy, and it doesn't line up exactly, which is very much what happened with Cooper's dream. We saw it happen, and then the following episode, the next morning, he's describing it to Harry and Lucy, and he describes it a little bit differently from, from what we saw. And likewise, Gordon has this epiphany when he's telling about the dream and he remembers a detail from the dream that he had forgotten just as Dale obviously uh, had had forgotten the critical detail of the dream, which is Laura telling him who killed her. Uh, and I thought that was just a neat throwback to a very different dream sequence. Uh, but it's got this nice callback in addition to just sticking this scene from Firewalk with me that looks so weird. You know, I mean, I still think of classic Twin Peaks as Twin Peaks in my head. But I've now gotten so used to them in 2017 that when they do this flashback and they show Gordon Cole and Dale Cooper and Philip Jeffries uh, from from the early 90s, they look so young. Yeah. Yeah. This scene, I got a lot to say about this scene. I thought this was an amazing scene and one of the, the, you know, the the highlights of the entire season so far. Um, This was also the only scene that you know, I think I had been prepared for. And the reason for that was this was the scene um, in the David Lynch, the art life documentary that JR and I talked about a few weeks ago. There's, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes into the movie, you know, it's in David Lynch's, you know, compound in LA. And there's a scene, there's a, a, you can, visible is a page from one of his notebooks. And it actually, you know, you can see it's, about this scene of Monica Bellucci scene in Paris. And so, you know, I didn't know if it was filmed or not, uh, but it did make its way into it and appeared in this episode. And I will just say, this is the best use of Showtime's budget yet. Kudos for them for 
whatever. Flying David Lynch and a crew filming on location in Paris with Monica Bellucci. God bless every corporate person who signed off on that. This is wonderful. Um, And And the French for the uh, tax breaks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure that there was a French tax rebate involved, which uh, Ken or Ken's Tulpa is taking advantage of right now. Um, uh, the, the sound design during this, uh, Cole's dream, uh, as he starts recounting it, this kind of almost like a clicking noise comes through. Uh, it's vaguely reminiscent. It's less ominous and foreboding, but it reminded me of that kind of clicking record, uh, during Maddie, Maggie for, uh, Maggie's, um, Maddie's murder. Um, and, uh, yeah, this whole sequence too, you know, it reminded me of, you know, something from like a Fellini or Bergman movie from the sixties. It had that kind of classic sixties art film dream sequence feel. Um, and also in its kind of black and white and the kind of iris effect around the edges of the image, it reminded me a lot of, um, uh, I think one, one of my favorite short films by Lynch is, uh, 1996 premonitions following an evil deed, which he shot, um, using the Lumiere, uh, cameras from the late 19th century. Um, yeah, and you're right. I like that you caught that little um, mismatch, I guess, or misquotation, whatever, of the the phrase. But the we are like the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside the dreams. And then I like Cole saying, I understand. Uh, and that's Cooper says the same thing to the uh, person we now know is the fireman in the very, very beginning um, right. of the season. Uh, and then, you know, but who is the dreamer? Um, but this this. I think Gordon says it's an ancient phrase. We are like the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside the dreams. Um, this is actually a pretty loosely translated uh, quotation from the Upanishads. And Lynch apparently used this same quotation with a little bit extra added to it to introduce Inland Empire at many of the screenings of the film he attended in 2006. And so he, then he said, here's the whole quote. We are like the spider. We weave our life and then move uh, along in it. We are like the dreamer who dreams and then lives in the dream. This is true for the entire universe. So I thought it was interesting to hear the whole quotation there. And I, I feel like this question of who the dreamer is might be crucial, you know, for how we evaluate the whole season. Uh, you know, is it us? Is it Cooper? Is it Audrey? I don't think they're going to go for the kind of, you know, ending of St. Elsewhere or New Heart kind of, you know, like. Cooper's just going to wake up in uh, his bed in uh, room 315 of the Great Northern in 1991 and be like, man, I had a weird dream. Um, but there'll be some other way in which I think this question is answered. Yeah. If Audrey's next to him, I won't mind okay. that. Okay. Um, I, I, I can handle the new hard ending if, if he wakes up next yeah, to Audrey. Yeah. Um, one thing I was going to say about, you know, the dream, literally the dream within a dream of uh, remembering what happened with Philip Jeffries. Um, I like that. Uh, Cole said he appeared and didn't appear. Um, and Jeffrey says, who do you think that is there? And apparently for this episode 14, uh, there's someone, I forgot to look up the name of the actor, just credited his voice in the credits for this. And apparently he redubbed for whatever reason, um, David Bowie's voice as Philip Jeffries here. And that was apparently, he said something about it on Twitter this week, but apparently he was brought in and just redubbed that. And I think he's, who do you think that is there? Um, that's also what Jeffrey says, uh, in the missing pieces. Um, although in fire walk with me itself, he says, who do you think this is there? Um, so again, as you pointed out earlier, Kyle, there's a slight kind of whatever alteration between the two. And it's exactly at this moment in fire walk with me, you know, when 
Bowie is pointing at, uh, you know, McLaughlin. Uh, and that's when shit really starts to go haywire. The electrical static starts occurring. The jumping man shows up. We start seeing those flashes of the meeting above the convenience store. Uh, things get really crazy. And then also after this, Jeffries did say, it was a dream. We lived inside a dream. Uh, and then uh, I, I was really... My friend and I had a discussion about this last week, uh, about episode 13 in relationship to, to Jeffries. Uh, but we, him pointing out Cooper here and saying, who do you think that is there? Uh, as well as while this is happening, Cooper's doppelganger is on the security camera of the hallway in floor seven of the Philadelphia field office. Uh, it brings up this kind of question of, you know, circularity or, or premonition, perhaps by this point, we, you know, Jeffries has already kind of come unstuck in time to borrow Kurt Vonnegut's phrase from Slaughterhouse Five, he might already have met Cooper's doppelganger, you know, somewhere above the convenience store or when he was with Judy in Seattle. The question of is it future, is it past, is probably one that Jeffries can't answer at this point. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought I found it really fascinating that it even this, you know, that this like four minute sequence in Fire Walk with Me seems like it's had such an incredible importance. The Philip Jeffrey sequence on the planning and kind of architecture of, of, uh, this new season of the show. Um, do you guys have anything else to add? Cause I had one other point about genre note, but I was, I, I feel like I've been talking too long. Well, I, I just have one question for you, Jeff. At this point, when we're seeing the Philip Jeffries sequence, how many dreams do you think are happening at that moment? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, you're talking about dreams within dreams. You've got, you've got Gordon having a dream, remembering something that actually happened that has long been believed to have actually taken place in Agent Cooper's dream. We now have Philip Jeffries saying that they're, they're living within a dream. We're getting quotations wrong on both sides of this, uh, implying that some of it is remembrance after the fact of a previous dream. I mean, there can be like eight dreams going on simultaneously at this point. So, you know, who is yeah. the dreamer? Everybody, I think everybody in yeah. the show is having this dream right now, and and, and, it yeah, and all be. the dreams are kind of intersecting, and it seems like affecting each other too. That's which is and that's happened before, you know. I mean, uh, Dale Cooper and Laura Palmer had the same dream, the same dream, yeah, yeah. And you know, one final thing I was going to say about this, um, I was reminded of a weird, you know, kind of thing. Uh, this is this happens in season two, episode thirteen, and in Dead Dog Farm, Jean Renault right before I, I believe he dies, has this conversation with Agent Cooper. I'd also like to say R.I.P. Michael Parks, the great actor uh, who played John Renault, who also passed away this year, one of the you know many, many cast members who's died in the, in the last few years. Um, but there's this really interesting moment where he accuses Cooper of bringing evil with him somehow to Twin Peaks. And he describes Twin Peaks as this quiet, simple place. He says, before you came here, in this French accent that's so great, you know, Twin Peak was a simple place. And then he says, suddenly the simple dream become the nightmare. So if you die, maybe you will be the last to die. This is Renault, Jean Renault talking to Cooper. Maybe you brought the nightmare with you and maybe the nightmare will die with you. Uh, and so this, I don't know, I went back and watched this scene and found it really fascinating and shedding it in light of what we found out in this episode in this season, a whole new light on, you know, Cooper's role in things. And I'm, you know, last week I talked about, you know, how as much as we love him and what a wonderful character he is, some of, you know, Cooper's moral does have moral faults that led to his failing his test in the lodge, you know, blind, a certain blindness about things, weakness for women, 
over-enthusiasm tendency to let his emotions cloud his judgment. Um, yeah, but I, I was, I found that, um, conversation with Jean Renault, which I had not thought about in a while, um, having some interesting kind of relevance here. Yeah. Cool. I'm done. Move along. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll that, that, that was all. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, no, no. And yeah. No, that's we'll good. Move stuff. on to the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station where Andy, Bobby, and Hawk are preparing to make their hike uh, into the woods up the mountain to Jackrabbit's Palace. Uh, Frank comes in with Chad. Chad asks where they're going. Hawk reveals that they're going up the mountain, then pulls his gun. Fucking Chad is under arrest. Uh, it's crime for crimes that, that uh, they think Chad knows about but doesn't disclose. Uh, Chad's cuffed and led away, telling the, these guys that they made a big mistake. Uh, so we're all really happy to see Chad in custody. Yeah. Yeah. And I loved it that Hawk, you know, you've got Hawk holding the gun on a bad guy who's pretending to be a good guy in the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station, which just instantly took me back to Leland's confession on the night Laura's killer was caught, uh, where he was holding the gun on Leland while they, while they put the cuffs on him. But does anybody else think it was a bad idea for Hawk to tell Chad where they were going? I mean, what is the point of that? What good can come of that? I mean, we have we had this with Frank going to see Ben Horn before. I mean, it's like the sheriff's department employees are surprisingly open about sharing information, except when they're in a situation where they ought to share the information. You know, they don't tell Chad what he's being charged with. They tell him, you know what you did wrong. They don't even tell him what they're charging him with or why they're arresting him. And you know, as Jeff noted earlier, uh, they, they don't, they're not fully forthcoming with this FBI agent with whom they have a longstanding relationship. They don't give him all the information that he needs. But when they shouldn't tell somebody something, they're, they're blabbing stuff all over I the mean, place. I mean, all that is true, Kyle, but think how coolly you know, Bobby just was passing out a turkey and cheese, a ham and cheese, a roast beef and cheese sandwich, a just cheese <laughs> sandwich. Right, right before right. they busted Chad, they were so calm and cool and casual about it. Like, and there was no indication soon as fucking Chad comes in the room, you know, he didn't, he didn't have a sandwich for him because he's going to be warming up that microwave Garmin yeah. Bozia yeah. slop. Microwave yeah. Garmin Bozia, yeah. that's even, it. <laughs> he doesn't even get a sandwich from the double R, but I loved how they just, you know, he passed out the sandwiches and then they went to work. It was great. Right. So cool guys, Andy, Bobby, Frank, and Hawk, uh, drive the sheriff's department SUV or Bronco or whatever into the woods. They get out and they're all wearing matching sheriff's department backpacks. Sweet. Uh, and they, uh, start hiking into the woods. We know they have good nutritious lunches with them. Yeah. That's right. Power lines are, are humming ominously over, overhead. Bobby leads them deep into the woods along the road to the location where listening post alpha once stood where his dad used to take him many times. And finally they come to this large fallen tree, Jack Rabbit's palace, where he and his father used to sit and make up tall tales. What it reminded me of looking at it was, was the crag uh, where we saw the fireman and Senorita Dido in part eight. Uh, and as they were going through the woods, uh, it reminded me of the scene in season one where Coop and Harry and Hawk and Doc Hayward were traipsing through the woods. And, and I wish that Lynch had replicated that four across shot where their faces come into the frame. And uh, JR, when I had made that point in our show notes, you had pointed out to me correctly that, uh, that, that those episodes are written by Mark Frost. It was directed by Leslie Linka Gladder, so it's not, it wasn't a Lynch shot, but I think it would have been a, a neat homage uh, for him to have included. You know, we had the sun through the trees, which reminded me of what Carl Rod saw just before Richard Horn ran the boy down in the intersection. And it seemed like it, there wasn't the kind of 
herky-jerkiness that we saw in the you know the space box scene or with uh, uh, Sarah Palmer watching the boxing match. But there was a little bit of, of time displacement uh, in some of their movements as they're going through the woods. Not a lot, but there's just a little bit of it. Yeah, and, and you know, Kyle, I agree. That's a great shot from episode five or six, depending on how you count it, entitled Cooper's Dreams which was written by Mark Frost. And I think this episode is directly a callback to that episode because we've got the same trip into the woods that the, uh, that the, the right. depart- sheriff's department team uh, made before. But I think what's significant here is when they did it at that time, they made Andy wait at the car. Hmm. I, I don't know right. if you remember that, but Andy was very disappointed in that. But Andy has matured. I and mean, obviously that's yeah. a big part of what's going on in this episode. Absolutely. So I think the, the illusion is there. Uh, we're just not surprised that Lynch is going to you know, recreate a shot by some other director on the series. Yeah, yeah, sure. So the the cool guys put dirt in their pockets and they had 253 yards due east where they come across an area sort of concealed by smoke. Uh, where they're like intermittent bright flashes from off screen, uh, accompanied by electrical crackling. When the smoke clears, we see a nude woman lying on the forest floor beside what looks like this sort of like cauldron or I look to me almost like a, a tree stump that had been filled up with like boiling hot. I mean, we, we thought maybe it's Garmin Bosey. I thought it almost looked like liquid metal. Yeah. Uh, and what, I thought was, that it was, was in there. I, I thought I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but yeah, this I thought this was anti Garmin Bozia, um, and it looked to me like milk and honey, you know, uh, I, I, or or something like that. But I, yeah, or liquid metal. But I, I think this is a different substance from Garmin Bozia or from the the scorched engine oil uh, that we saw outside Glastonbury Grove. It seemed like uh, uh, a liquid of of a much different type. Right. So uh, they they kind of uh, approach the scene, uh, turn they roll the woman over. She is alive, and she is Nido, who we had last seen in part three, falling from the space box. Uh, the woman with, with without eyes, who's got skin patched over her eyes, who can only speak in this weird kind of breathy, almost dolphin speak. Um, Andy takes her hand, and then a huge vortex appears in the sky over them, yeah. uh, like we saw in Buckhorn, uh, where Ruth's body was deposited. This vortex was different from the one in Buckhorn, though. It had a white center instead of, I thought, the, the black center we saw um, in Buckhorn. And this kind of led me to believe this is an opening perhaps to the White Lodge, especially because we see where, where Andy's going to go next. Yeah, um, I think that's de- that's definitely correct. Yeah. I think and then, we, the, the, the Nido has landed. Yeah. And uh, and now we're opening up a portal to the, to the White Lodge. Yeah. Uh, Nido's appearance here, this nude woman in the grass, also called to mind for me – that Duchamp piece I talked about uh, in episode yeah, 11. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Antone, which I mentioned with regard to Ruth Davenport's um, body. Um, it's a little bit of, you know, it, it's not a, a frontal view of the nude woman, but still the kind of the grass. That I think in the Duchamp piece, there's this, it's like, looks like AstroTurf. It looks very fake, very green grass. Uh, but this whole kind of sequence, when we first saw it, it still brought to mind to me again that, that uh, Duchamp piece I talked about. So, yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I I think that's a that's a great point. Those are some great points there, Jeff. Uh, I I do think that th- there's a little bit of resonance to this scene from the fact that uh, Garland Briggs is the one who led them there. I mean, he he foresaw these men coming to see Betty. He left them specific instructions, including the importance of putting soil in their pockets. And, and I think it's it's rather telling. Going back to your point, Jr. about them not leaving Andy in the car. Andy's the one who reminds them, oh, we got to put dirt in our pockets. Andy's the only one of them who wasn't there at Betty's house. Andy's the yeah. only one who wasn't there when they opened the tube. And he's the one who remembers this, this really, uh, critical point. And, and to me, you know, it, it gives us some, uh, admittedly obliquely, but some insights into the things that Briggs learned during his own season two disappearances. And that dovetails, uh, rather nicely with what we later see of Sarah Palmer, uh, who it seems important to recall was the conduit through whom a message was conveyed from Dale Cooper in the Black Lodge to Major Briggs in the season two finale. And Andy is uh, is almost you know inadvertently the discoverer of, of something important. And, and to me, that was this nice callback, uh, again, to the season two premiere in which he stepped on a board at Leo's, which revealed important evidence. It was Leo's circle brand boots, circle brand boots, and, and incurred an injury in the process that had him bleeding from the nose and mouth like Billy in Audrey's dream. And Andy made that discovery because he was running back to the house to tell Harry that Albert had just arrived. And when he did that, he referred to him as Agent Rosen Flower. Here we are finding out these guys are on the Blue Rose Task Force. And, and he made the same kind of verbal slip, JR, that you made last week with the, with the wildflower thing. And, and what this calls to mind to, for me is the words of, of Black Elk of the Oglalala Sioux or Oglala Sioux. Uh, the power of the world always works in circles and everything tries to be round. Uh, and the one criticism that I have of this scene, uh, is look, you're on top of a mountain in the Pacific Northwest in October. You're all wearing jackets. You all brought provisions. There's a nude woman in distress. Somebody want to give her a blanket or a jacket to cover up for crying out loud? Yeah, I mean, okay, John Ashcroft. I mean, there, there's a there's a uh, interdimensional portal opening up in the sky above them. I get. I <laughs> I, I think that their their attention was directed elsewhere. I mean, Andy is the one who actually kneels down and cares for Nido, holds her hand, grasps it tightly. He made a human connection with her, and I think that was important. And, you know, when she next appears, when Andy returns from the White Lodge, she is covered in, like, some black cloth, I guess, that just happened to be there or something. <laughs> Maybe as a blanket in, in, his, in his backpack. So Andy stands up and... After he grasps Nido's hand and he blinks out of existence with a flash of light, he appears in what, you know, in our show notes, we called the Gray Lodge, but I'm prepared to call it the White Lodge at this point. Yeah, could be. Uh, be. It it does really appear to be that this is, this is the place. Andy is sitting in a chair across from, uh, the backup singer for the Mysterians slash, (laughs) slash the giant, uh, and who, who now identifies himself as, as the fireman, after having while he walks into the room in his smoking jacket and then sits down, looks across him and then says that he's the fireman. He raises a hand and then when he lowers it, this like weird – I thought it looked like kind of a wooden box that was made to look like origami with either a finger, finger or some sort of black phallic symbol sticking up out of the top of it. Uh, anyway, it, it, it starts to seep 
a bunch of snow smoke or mist or or whatever up above and around Andy, and then it kind of I can't remember did it coalesce back down to that point? I I can't I can't exactly remember, but ultimately he ends up looking up above into this portal. Uh, but before I go for, further, Kyle, do you have something you want to uh, – Kyle or Jeff, is there anything you want to talk about with this scene? Yeah. I mean, I, I just – as with the revelation that Janie E. and Diane are half-sisters, this was the second kind of totally surprising, unexpected moment. Andy being chosen to go you know, from everyone in, in the lodge, uh, I do think that moment of physical contact, like tender contact, was important and maybe it was one of the reasons he was chosen. And I talked last week about – you know that moment of contact between uh, Dougie and Anthony, you know, at, at Simon's coffee as being important, but it made total intuitive sense that Andy would be chosen. And you mentioned how Andy was missing from some of those earlier scenes, um, Kyle. And even in this, when they were, he was like sort of lagging behind everyone. Uh, but yeah, it just, I never in a, you know, a, a, a thousand years would have predicted that Andy would have ended up in the white lodge. But once he was there, I love that he just, he didn't seem surprised, you know, like, like Dougie was when he showed up in what might be the Black Lodge or the Red Room, but he just kind of took everything in his beautiful Andy literal way of like, okay, this is happening. What's going on? Yeah. So that was, I, I, I loved it. It was great. Uh, and then I also thought it was interesting that we do, you know, uh, the fireman, uh, the artist formerly known as the giant question mark, question mark. Uh, I, I liked that he, watches i guess or or puts out the fires associated with bob in the black lodge that's how i took his name identity and uh just want to add i feel like for whatever reason the fireman's elements are earth and air instead of fire yeah and and related to the fireman of course news of it had leaked previously but this is the first time we have it confirmed in continuity that the artist formerly known as the giant is the fireman and and he raised you know he raised his hand to Andy and that's what put whatever that weird thing was in his hand uh and it's that raised hand is a gesture that's similar to the one he gave agent Cooper at the end of the second season premiere when he came back to him in a dream the following night and and obviously his first appearance at the beginning of the episode uh uh, was was when he appeared to Agent Cooper, you know, uh, it, we didn't know him as the fireman at the time, but looking back on it, he shows up with this quenching liquid on the night of the mill fire just after Agent Cooper has been fired upon. It's the same night that Leland's hair turns white. It's the same night that Major Briggs uh, has his vision uh, about Bobby's future. So there's there's a lot of stuff even there that lines up with the idea of him being the fireman. And, and Jeff, I agree with you about, about Andy being picked. When you compare it to the fireman's first appearance talking to Cooper, you know, he starts out by saying, okay, I'm going to tell you three things, and if they come true, will you believe me? And then when he shows up again later that episode, after one of the three things has been proven true, he has seen that there is a man in uh, in a smiling bag. Dale is still having some doubts, and and he even still says, you know, the things I tell you will not be wrong. And he tells him to listen and not talk, and that's what Andy does here. Dale didn't really do that. Uh, Dale really uh, really needed proof of these things, you know, supposedly for a guy who's so intuitive and so trusting, uh, you know, throwing rocks at bottles and all that, he really needed a lot of convincing uh, to to trust the giant who who never steered him wrong at any point. And, and of course, we get this later when James is talking to Freddie and he just comes right out and asks him, says, why would the fireman pick you? And it seems like 
the you know the fireman is choosing Andy, who's the least competent, least cerebral of these law enforcement officers, because it it appears that what they need is the pure of heart. They need people uh, who are who are going to be uh, these willing innocents like Andy and Freddie, which is kind of ironic because that's the same way Bob is picking uh, whom to prey upon when he chooses the you know the babes in the woods like the young Leland or going after guys like uh, Bill Hastings. But he's not he's not picking people now who need to see the things he tells them proven true before they believe him. Uh, he's getting guys who are just trusting him. And and that, I think, gives us a signal that Jeff was on the right track when he was talking about uh, the good Dale being trapped in, in Dougie, that it's part of the purification process that's necessary uh, to his restoration. And, and Jeff, you, you made a great point, uh, which I apologize for derailing with my uh, ancillary and pointless David Bowie reference, although... Who's to say that I didn't think of David Bowie because I, too, had one of David Lynch's Monica Bellucci dreams? Ziggy Dandruff. It's okay. There you See, go. It was, it was worth it for coining Ziggy Dandruff. Jerry, you want to walk us through the uh, yeah, so, and, Andy's I, picture show? Yeah, we'll, yes. we'll just do the, the, the greatest hits. You know, it's actually a very succinct summary, just like the giant or we now know the fireman watched <clears throat> back in episode eight. Uh, he gets an e- almost an even briefer version of the events, but uh, what's shown to Andy in this sort of porthole in the ceiling, uh, first, he it's a succession of images. First, the experiment, uh, actually the experiment model from the glass box, and then we see the experiment from part eight spewing its, uh, you know, whatever it is. It includes the bob uh, globule that looks like the amniotic bob we we we've, we argue about every week uh that maybe did or didn't come out of cooper uh the, bad cooper rather the bobule uh right the bobule the bobule uh, and then we then there's a scene of the convenience store and 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 but just the convenience store not the sort of uh frantic you know flashing woodsman all over the convenience store just the convenience store then we see you know the woodsman the lincoln woodsman uh who says Got a light. We see power lines uh, crackling. We see the 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 iconic scene of the girl screaming, running across the schoolyard in the morning. Everyone found out that Laura was dead uh, in the original series pilot. We see the red curtains. We see Laura Palmer's prom picture between two angels, uh, the angels that appeared in Fire Walk with Me. We see Nido, nude in the forest, now appearing to uh, Andy and the rest of the cool guys of the sheriff's department, uh, which, you know, indicates that this is a very significant event, which, you know, Andy's later uh, lines uh, attest to that. And then we see Agent Cooper dividing and flashing back and forth between the image of the good Dale and the bad Dale in the red room. We see a ringing office desk phone with a blinking button. We see Andy leading Lucy through the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Station hallway, apparently toward a surprise. We see Nido in the forest attempting to speak to Andy. Then we see the power uh, pole, the electricity pole with the number six on it that we saw at the Fat Trout Trailer Park in Firewalk with Me, and that we saw at the corner where the little boy was killed by Richard Horn. The same corner where Mike confronted Leland Palmer while Laura Palmer was in uh, Leland's convertible. Um, And then the smoke kind of gathers back into the black finger or phallus in the weird box that Andy's holding. And then Andy vanishes. Yeah. Just a couple of things I was going to add about this scene. Great job recapping that chair, but the, um, 
those viewing orbs above Andy, I look, I thought those looked like eyes and, and the one Andy looks at, it actually has something that, you know, looks like sclera, like a little, you know, and, uh, I think or like I let it a floater almost. Uh, and then I was reminded, of course, of the horse is the white of the eyes uh, and dark within. And I loved how the fireman communicated, you know, visually and cinematically to Andy. It's almost like this information is intuitively downloaded uh, to him. Uh, and then the only, you know, one of these images I don't think we've seen before is that one of Andy leading Lucy through what looks like the Twin Peaks Sheriff's uh, department and and Lucy did look a little scared or freaked out. I definitely think that we will see this scene at you know some climactic moment in the next four um, episodes. Yeah, but uh, uh, this was uh, just a, a standout, great sequence. I love this. And the, the the curious thing to me is the only dialogue in in what Andy is watching is got a light. And of course, as we noted before, the character from the original series who used the phrase got a light was Dick Tremaine. And I'm wondering, you know, again, it's Andy, the supposed father of Wally Brando. I mean, I I hate to say this, JR. I think Michael Sarah is coming back. I I think we're going to have another appearance of Wally Brando uh, because I think got a light. Uh, If you're Andy, Surely that's got to download into your head that Wally Brando is actually Dick Tremaine's son. Yeah, no, and I'm I, I turned around on Wally. I, I would be happy to see him come back. Actually, okay, uh, we're good. You know, it, the white room, the part, the ceiling of the White Lodge where Andy's looking up reminds me of the white room in two thousand one. Yeah, uh, you know the 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 anyway that that there, the ceiling had a, a kind of a similar look to it in that white room uh that appears you know towards the end of 2001 uh, shortly before we see a kind of like what we saw in season or episode part eight of the return after the explosion of trinity so we'll, we'll have more I, I think to talk about this later but uh we go back to jack rabbit's palace where frank bobby and hawk are appearing in multiple apparitions uh basically like woodsmen uh, jumping around back and forth, back and forth until finally they sort of coalesce into their, them, into their normal selves. Frank and Hawk have an exchange. They have no memory of what happened, what happened to us. They don't understand or remember what happened to them back there. Yeah. <clears throat> and then Andy appears carrying Nido. She's now in a blanket and, you know, very calmly and clearly explains they need to get her down the mountain because she's very important. And there are people that want her dead. She's all right physically. She needs to be placed in a cell where she'll be safe. And they don't need to tell anyone about this. And it's interesting the way Andy talks. He's so authoritative yeah, right. uh, and, and in, a, in a kind way, uh, in a way, but in, not in a way that he normally would speak to the sheriff. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's great. And I was I was going to say, I felt like the, the reason that, uh, you know, Frank, Bobby, Hawk and Andy put the soil from Jackrabbit's palace, you know, uh, in their pockets, whatever was to bring them back to this place. Um, I felt like if they did not have the soil from Jackrabbit's palace there, they could, you know, have come unstuck, uh, in time and, and gotten, uh, ungrounded and, and floated away. And I think that was the reason Major Briggs figured that out, told them to put that grounding device of the soil there. Um, and also, you know, the, uh, they're kind of wiped memories and this sort of displaced time. Uh, these are, you know, sort of, uh, 
part of the classic UFO abduction phenomena, which, as we know from the secret history, Mark Frost is very much a uh, aficionado and student of. So, yeah. Yeah, and to me, Jr. the the part you were talking about, Andy sounding authoritative and speaking to the sheriff in a way he normally wouldn't, it reminds me of the commanding Andy that we saw saving Harry's life uh, in the season one finale. He's very calm, he's very cool, and there again, he talked to Harry, you know, in a way that you would not normally expect. So Andy has his moments, and and you know, when they happen, they're really really cool. Yeah, and so uh, we we cut from here to the sheriff's department where Andy and Lucy are uh, dressing Nido in, I guess, one of Lucy's, I mean, like a, a robe? Yeah. What would you call that? Like a sleeping robe? Robe, pajamas, uh, something like robe, that. Robe, pajamas, yeah. something. And anyway, that apparently she used the last time there was a missing dog in the sheriff's department, <laughs> which I, I can't quite put that together. Chad's in a nearby cell, and he's sitting across from a a an inmate who's uh in really bad shape he's drooling blood he's got a messed up face he's got he's got actually a wound on his head with a bloody bandage on it while he continues to drool blood out of his mouth uh he makes kind of animal noises but mostly just mimics what other people say i'm thought about you know blood coming out of his mouth and face which i think is something audrey said in one of her scenes yeah. Previously. I think this guy might be and, Billy. Yeah. I thought the same thing. Right. He may, he may be Billy. And, uh, you know, Chad gives Andy a hard time and Andy says, you give good policemen a bad name. And then, of course, it, apparently he's drunk, but I, you know, he's, I think his problems are much more serious than alcohol. Uh, but the mimic, the bleeding mimic parrots what Andy says back, parrots everybody like Dougie would. And I, I'm just recalled, you know, being the father of small children, how incredibly annoying it is when a kid does this and won't stop. And that's exactly what this, uh, you know, uh, bleeding guy is doing in the sh- in the cell. And, and he he's also really into imitating Nido's weird breathy <laughs> sounds, which it's it's just all really quite disturbing and i love that chad had to deal with all of this you know it was just yeah no that's right audio torture in the cell he had it coming to him it was great so yeah uh, i know it did well i don't know somebody said nido t- sounded like a dolphin which i heard i also thought nido kind of sounded like a monkey at times and i wondered if she might perhaps have some association with judy or the monkey behind the mask uh yeah and um I'll, I'll, another you know we, we talked about how this guy might be Billy, uh, but Chad ends this scene, you know, say, calling the jail a, a fucking nut house, and that's uh, language that will be or return again uh, in the uh, final scene uh, of this episode. So yeah, and I, I, I caught two callbacks here. Number one, the exchange between Chad and the drunk uh, reminds me of Bobby and Mike howling at James across the jail cell in in the original series. Uh, And sure enough, this scene is sandwiched in between a scene with Bobby and a scene with James. Uh, And then the other thing before that, when Andy gets mad and goes in there and points at Chad and to say, you know, you give you give police officers, good police officers, a bad name. And very much in the season two premiere, in the very scene where Cooper is describing laying out the events of the night Laura died, Albert uh, has been giving him a hard time uh, throughout the episode, and Andy is finally sick of it. And he's the one who stands up and, and starts lecturing Albert and pointing at him and saying, you know, I'm sick of the way you talk to Sheriff Truman, and very much does the same thing with Albert uh, as he does with, with Chad here. And I just, I just thought that was a, a, a neat connection uh, to see 
so many of of Andy's greatest hits from the very end of season one, the very beginning of season two, kind of coming to the fore in in this episode in a way we really haven't seen in season three. Yeah, I definitely uh, was reminded of the scene of James in the jail with Mike and Bobby, you know, whooping and howling at them uh, when we see Chad doing that uh, and kind of trying to Hector Andy uh, in, in this, in this particular scene. Um, Now we go from here and let's, is there anything else anybody wants to add to this? This was a great little bit of comic relief after all the metaphysical craziness of the first like 25 minutes of the episode. So, yeah. Right. Except for the, you know, pool of blood gathering on the floor of the cell. Uh, I, I think Ken, Ken noted that these, that the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department may not be providing constitutionally adequate medical care, uh, to their inmates. And that's, that, that, that may in fact be the case. Yeah. Who is practicing medicine in Twin Peaks now? Maybe we, Dr. Jacoby's right. not. And Doc, Doc right. Hayward is, you know, Doc Hayward's not. somewhere else in Verity. Yeah. So now he's fishing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, we don't we don't know who the doctor would be. Anyway, at the Great Northern Hotel, uh, and you always love it whenever the Great Northern Hotel appears in a scene because you get the roar of those falls. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's very intense, and it's just a, a beautiful thing about the show and how it's shot and how it's cut, and the sound design. You know, thanks to David Lynch of the whole thing. So anyway, turns out James uh, is a security guard. Uh, he is. I don't know if he works for the Great Northern specifically or if they're contracted with the Great Northern. Did somebody see their patch? I think it's like the patch Great Northern. Northern. Yeah. Oh, wow. So they're actual employees of the hotel. That's very old school. So anyway, he's there. And it's funny because despite what – who said that James was in a uh, motorcycle accident and he – he just doesn't talk as much now. I think Shelley said that in episode two. Yeah, that was Shelley, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Very beginning. He doesn't seem yeah. he doesn't seem taciturn or laconic at all in this scene. But he's he's waiting for a delivery and he's talking to his coworker who's a twenty two year old British kid named Freddie Sykes. And Freddie wears a green gardening glove in his right hand, uh, which at the beginning of the scene it's it's quite unclear what's going on because he appears to be turning like chestnuts into dust with his hand. And then finally James takes a a nutcracker and does it, you know, in a less manual fashion uh, in a way that actually allows you to get to the nut. And anyway, turns out it's James's birthday and he wants to know about Freddie's green glove. And Freddie, you know, says he doesn't come off and he's not supposed to talk about it, but James pressures him to reveal what is going on with the green glove because it's his birthday. Apparently, you know, when it's your birthday, you can make people violate their oaths to the White Lodge. Um, it turns out that Freddie, when he was in London just six months ago, was mulling over what he was doing with his life. He, he talked about going out on the street, walking down the streets after, you know, going to the pub with his friends, uh, having a couple pints. You know, perhaps he went to the Tesco. I, I don't know. Uh, but maybe that's where he goes to get the glove ultimately. Finally, uh, he gets sucked into a vortex and is taken to where the fireman is. And I think he says he he just jumps into some boxes in an alley for a lark and then gets sucked into a vortex. I think that was a great detail. He's like, what am I going to do with my life? And he had this weird sort of feeling and he saw these boxes. And so he just jumps on top of some boxes as one does uh, after a couple pints. Um, it happens. And then 
Right, he gets. I was about to say we, we've all three had nights like that in Athens. I th- no, sure, definitely, definitely. <laughs> There's no doubt about it that you know how tempting a stack of boxes in an alleyway might look. Anyway, so he he ends up in the White Lodge. We know now that he's in the White Lodge, talking to someone who calls himself the fireman. The fireman tells him to go to a hardware store and purchase a pack of gardening gloves with only the right glove in it. He did as he told, but the clerk at the store refused to sell him the package because it was open. Uh, finally, uh, Freddie ended up sort of force purchasing the glove, but for some reason, the clerk couldn't handle the fact that he was buying an already open package. Because he was a job's chase- worth, man. He's a job's That's right. Worth. He was a job's worth. We all know. Well, he, he helpfully explains what a job's worth is. Uh, it's somebody who is, is basically anal retentive about their job. And so he, uh, Freddie ultimately ends up punching the clerk while wearing the glove that had the power of a pile driver. And Freddie remembered that the fireman told him to go to Twin Peaks, which he did, finding when he arrived at the airport that the ticket had already been purchased for him. Now, there's something about this scene that that I don't know why it brought it to mind, but this notion of a young man walking down the streets at night, not sure what he's going to do with his life, wanting there to be something better out of his life, this recalled to me a scene in this autobiography of FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper, My Life, My Tapes, where he's at college. He's at Haverford College. It's in November of, 2000, of 1973. He goes out with his friend, uh, Howard, who wanted to get laid. And as he's leaving uh, the bar where, where Dale had been, he starts following somebody that he thinks is suspicious. And I'm, I'm going to read to you this description, you know, just, just, just a paragraph or two. For the next 15 minutes, I continued in what I could best determine the direction the figure had taken. I searched several alleys and traversed a number of streets to no avail. At what I can only estimate to be 1145, I gave up and proceeded home. It was within two minutes of that time that I came across the body of the victim. She was lying face down, her clothes partially removed, multiple stab wounds visible over much of her torso. Her face had been badly beaten. What I felt at that time, I now realize was more than terror or shock. I firmly believe that the killer was in the striking distance of myself and could have easily claimed me as his second victim. This is not intuition. The presence of the killer was as real as the shaking in my hand at this moment. I do not understand the dark forces that result in so much brutality, but I now know that it is a real thing and it is out here at this very moment. I must find someone who can help me understand and fight this, but who? I began the evening last night looking for the companionship and warmth that so often seemed to elude me. I have now slipped even farther into that lonely place I was trying to escape from. And it seems to me what's going on with Freddie, with his vision or this notion of doing something bigger and better than himself for the world and being taken to the White Lodge as a young man you know, strongly reminded me of this particular chapter in Dale Cooper's life, according to Scott Frost, who wrote the autobiography. Yeah. And I look back, as I said, I look back at the book today too, and actually went through this section. And yeah, this seems like it's like a big kind of thing in the, you know, from this point of the book on is, you know, uh, Cooper's awareness of evil almost as like, you know, uh, an independent force, you know, uh, and, uh, he encounters it at this time. And, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, uh, that I'm glad you, you brought that up, JR. And, you know, like, I guess right. if, you know, in Haverford, he'd, and it, you know, you get this also a more 
dark, I guess a darker, lonelier, more obsessive, you know, kind of uh, problematic, I guess, version of Cooper than you get in the series in, in uh, the autobiography sure. in the book. Um, and, you know, if going along with some of the stuff I've been saying about Cooper's character and his test in the lodge, um, if you read the book in relation to it, it actually makes a little bit more um, sense. And yeah, he, he's more obsessive and uh, yeah, more tortured, I think in lots of ways than the Cooper we see in, in uh, seasons one and two. Right. There is a lot of darkness in his life. I mean, there's some, there's like an intimation that his mother who died of brain cancer was in fact wrestling with like some evil spirit. And, and then that, that was involved with her death and illness after this particular incident uh, in the book, he immediately succumbs to like a severe fever uh, which he he believes, you know, that he encountered this this evil that may have actually physically affected him from being so close to it, but he finally emerges. Yeah. Uh, you know, there 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 are all these points in his life where I, I just thought that the the parallel is Freddie goes out wandering the streets at night and he comes across something good. Yeah, Dale does the same thing and he comes across you know ultimate evil. Right, right. Uh, and and the person that he finds to help him make sense out of it ultimately is Wyndham Earl. Yeah. Right. Right. Anyway, that's all I got. No, that's a lot. That's great. Um, I was going to say, uh, well, <laughs> a minor point, but if it's October 1st and it's James's birthday, uh, we talked about some of the, you know, ancillary 90s material. Uh, according to the Star Picks Twin Peaks trading card and I believe the access guide, James Hurley, his birthday is January 1st, 1973, not October 1st which makes James Hurley a Capricorn like myself, Elvis, David Bowie, and Richard Nixon. Um, so I guess the star picks is not canonical and neither is the access guide. Uh, but uh, another point, I started doing some research on uh, Freddie's site. I mean, one thing I loved about this scene was, you know, Hurley's James Hurley's first appearance at the roadhouse at the end of, you know, the second episode of this season, he's with this guy, Freddie. And I remember watching it maybe the second time through. And I was like, is that guy wearing a green glove? That's weird. I wonder why that's happening. And just took it as some random Lynch weirdness, you know, kind of thrown in. Uh, but I love that there's a payoff for that, you know, 12 hours later. Uh, and, I did some research on Freddie Sykes and I found out, and this is usually Marvel comics. I think are, is usually, uh, I don't know, Ken or Kyle, which one, one of your beat, but Freddie yeah, Ken, Sykes, Ken's the Marvel guy. He's the Marvel guy. Okay. Uh, but, yeah. uh, several people kind of in their write-ups about this episode said this was almost Lynch's parody of like a superhero origin story. Uh, and a character named Freddie Sykes actually does appear in a very obscure 1960s Jack Kirby Marvel comic called I am the genie. In this comic, the character Freddie Sykes is a convict. He reads a lot when he's in jail, gets obsessed with the Arabian Nights. After he's released from prison, he travels the world and then encounters an actual genie uh, and goes insane with the power that this genie grants him. I think he makes the genie create a castle made of gold for him. Uh, he makes the genie grant him all sorts of wishes, uh, including, you know, blocking out the sun, which I thought was interesting in light of the solar eclipse next week, um, and making everyone think that the end of the world is Jeff, happening. Yeah. Jeff, as well as the blocking out of the Rancho Rosa logo for the first time. Right, exactly. right, exactly. Much more importantly, yeah. Uh, and then uh, for Kyle, this was an interesting, I think this was from comics from 1966 or 1967. Uh, he makes from whatever the timeline, the story, the genie rewrite history to make sure Nixon is elected uh, in, in 1968. I'm not making this up. Uh, and then at one point he uh, t 
turns the genie into a human and then switches places with the genie. This is his ultimate wish. But once he's a genie himself, uh, he has to obey the orders of the former genie who is now human. And he puts Freddy back in the bottle, ends his abuse of insane power. Maybe this is all a coincidence or maybe Mark Frost or David Lynch read this comic back in 1966 or 1967 and it, it stuck around in their brain. But I found all that just, just bizarre enough. Uh, to be to to mention, and I predict Freddie Sykes is either going to smash someone in the head with that glove or handle something electrical at a crucial moment in in episode seventeen or eighteen. Yeah, I, and I am I am genuinely ashamed of myself for not no, noticing the existence of a Twin Peaks Richard Nixon Jack Kirby connection. Uh, of course, you know when Jack Kirby left Marvel for DC in the early 1970s, he began building the Fourth World, which was all about the the ultimate struggle of good versus evil. Uh, and and he started that in this floundering series from the 50s, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. And both Jimmy Olsen and Dale Cooper have the same middle name, Bartholomew. Uh, as far as what uh, Freddie's going to do with with the green glove, um, I, I had I had assumed that. The ability to deliver this pile driver punch was given to him by the fireman in order to counteract Doppel Cooper's uh, superhuman superhuman punching power uh, that we saw when he hit Renzo uh, after their arm wrestling match. Although I, I think the fireman could have saved himself some trouble by remembering that Nadine Hurley also has superhuman strength. Uh, few observations about this particular scene: uh, six months prior to October first uh, was April. April 1st, that's April Fool's Day, of course. A lot of green in this scene centered primarily on the gardening glove, but also a lot of the uh, the background fixtures are, are green, which again is is uh, representing the benevolence that we're hopefully coming back into. And, and now that I, I'm afraid to say I think we've gotten our only David Bowie appearance that we're going to get, I'm beginning to think that the, the faux Philip Jeffries uh, uh, could be uh, the fireman or could be the fireman and Mike working together. Uh, well, I think what's happening is the fireman is working to manipulate matters around Doppelcooper. Mike is working to manipulate matters around the good Dale. And again, going back to the season two premiere, the fireman tells Dale, uh, we want to help you. And Coop says, who's we? And he doesn't answer the question. Uh, but we find out, of course, that it's the fireman. It's Mike, and it's the little man from another place who is now, of course, the evolved arm brain tree. And sure enough, that same trio is working to help Cooper come back now in season three. I also think Freddie might arm wrestle Doppel Cooper. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> that would be amazing. I don't know if the man from another place is confirmed good. I don't know that he was helping anybody other than just sort of appearing as a kind of neutral figure. Um, well, but he, he gave, I think the he, evolved, the evolved arm is helping. Yeah. That's what I'm saying is, is that, I mean, the, the evolved arm is the little man from another place. It's just evolved from being an arm to being the little man from another place to being the brain tree. And, you know, he's given him that the two, five, three information, which has come in darn handy. Uh, and, you know, showed up, uh, when Douglas Jones moved like a cobra to stop, uh, Ike the spike and told him squeeze his hand off, squeeze his hand off, which wound up being good advice. No, no, I agree. I guess I, I'm still stuck on this idea of why did Mike have to cut off his arm if his arm was going to turn into something good? Because it evolved. The, it couldn't evolve while it was on him. 
He had to cut it off. I see. But the, but the evolution didn't happen until the return. There was no notion that the, the man from another place was evolved until he became a brain tree. Yeah, but I, I thought my understanding, and this could be – I could be off base here, but my understanding was the arm, when removed, then evolved into the little man from another place who then it re-evolved into the electric brain tree. Yeah, well, right. But the little man is also, you know, seeming to be on Team Bob in the yeah. in the room above the convenience store. Yeah. Um, I I don't think he's. I think he's at best neutral and 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 probably evil in that form. I agree. The evolved arm is good, but anyway, I'm. I perhaps I'm quibbling. No, I'm more with you, Jr. <laughs> no, because I I originally I think thought the little man from another place was more good. Then I saw him at best ambivalent, and I think ultimately viewed him as. Uh, as leaning towards evil. Uh, yeah. But we certainly don't want to quibble over characters. We want to spend our time talking about what color the Rancho Rosa logo is this week. <laughs> right, or, or incredibly <laughs> obscure Jack Kirby uh, comic books. I love that. I, I love that so much. Yes. Jack, uh, Jack Kirby Sykes. does seem to be like an artist who vibrates at the same level of sort of high weirdness and intensity as someone like, you know, David Lynch. So, yeah, I thought I it was think worth that's absolutely true. Absolutely. That is 100 percent true. Yes. Right. I mean, only only David Lynch could make such psychedelic films without being one who seems to be, you know, using a lot of psychedelic drugs. And only Jack Kirby could have written those old issues of Doctor Strange. Or drawn, rather, I should say. So we'll move on to Elk's Point number nine bar, uh, which is uh, wow, what a scene, huh? Um, Kyle, you mentioned Black Elk before, right? Uh, and and Doc Hayward in the season two premiere refers to the Elk's Club fire of fifty nine. Yes, um, we see Sarah Palmer. She's kind of walking down the street. She comes to this bar, the Elks Point Number Nine bar, where there are pool tables and no live music. She sits down at the bar. The bartender seems to recognize her. She orders a Bloody Mary. And then you see this uh, man uh, in the corner at the end of the bar uh, in a, a trucker hat and a ponytail. And man, I wanted him to be Leo so bad. Did, <laughs> did any of you guys get that sense? He seems like where Leo could be now in his life, yeah. Right, right. Assuming yeah, he that Leo acts got a, like Leo, assume, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he definitely acts like Leo, you know. We don't we don't know what happened with Leo and his, you know, very significant predicament uh that he was in when we last saw him, uh, literally in the finale of season 2. Anyway, so it turns out this guy, he's got a, a t-shirt that says truck you. Um I'm going to call him a men's rights activist. <laughs> Uh, he, 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 he approaches Sarah Palmer, uh, and starts making, you know, really, uh, uh, clumsy and profane advances towards her. And she keeps telling him to leave her alone. Uh, he refuses and he just starts escalating with more, uh, crudity in her, in his responses. She calmly endures, uh, the insults uh, up to a point and then turns to him and says, I'll eat you. And, and like you, Kyle, I was, uh. Uh, I, I thought of, you know, it's a world of truck drivers from part one. 
yeah, we're definitely uh, we're definitely seeing that it's a world of truck drivers. And when we first see him at the end of the bar, that he's sitting in front of numerous mounted animal heads and horns. Fortunately, none of the animal heads have fallen down, which was a problem in the original series. Uh, and the cooler beside him has three stripes across the top of it. In descending order, they are red, yellow, and blue. Those are the same primary colored modified traffic light uh, color schemes that we saw uh, so much in the previous episode. So uh, the trucker is somewhat taken aback by uh, Sarah's promise to eat him uh, and starts, you know, overtly threatening violence. She turns around her ball uh, on the bar stool. She turns to face him and there's a hum as Sarah raises a hand and opens her face the same way that Laura opened her face to Dale in part one. Think so. Think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was in part one. When Laura opened her face, it was just pure blinding white light. Uh, when Sarah opens her face, she, we see crackling black smoky electrical energy inside of the facial cavity that she's opened. Then we see a, a, a monochromatic gray hand, a white hand with a devilish reversed ring finger. I thought the ring finger looked kind of like the thing sticking out of Andy's box. Um, could be. And then we see this uh, smile uh, or like like a toothy smile without a face. Uh, and then her voice growls, do you really want to fuck with this? And Jeff, I don't know if you put this into document, but didn't you pull uh, some art yeah. that David Lynch did that? Yeah, we'll, we'll, I'll try to put that up. Somewhere. Yeah, I think it's like a recent piece from like 2013 or something, you know, and it's, it's, it's basically almost exactly this. So it's like Lynch using a piece of his visual art, which is the, you know, the almost, I thought of the Cheshire cats kind of grin on this black, you know, background, but yeah, it looked like it was borrowed maybe either exactly, you know, from uh, this piece of visual art Lynch had done recently. Yeah. So she puts her face back in place, then, you know, you know, instantaneously like a Cobra, lunges forward and takes this huge bite out of his neck. He falls to the ground. He's bleeding dead. Sarah shrieks, tells the bartender that the man just, he just fell over and she professes that she's innocent, but the bartender doesn't believe her, tells his wife to call nine one one. The bartender says that they'll get to the bottom of this. And Sarah simply replies, yeah, sure is a mystery, huh? Yeah. So yeah. And it did seem like she almost couldn't remember it, you know, like had no memory of no. what she just done. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, you kind of do. Yeah. You kind of do. Yeah. I think uh, it's interesting because we've talked about the Laura as avenging angel. Now we have mother, uh, the mother, literal mother, maybe the same mother that was referred to in the space box. Right. Uh, you know, yeah, she's an ally. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's, she's definitely uh, fighting back uh, against the worst uh, tendencies of, men as they uh, can appear in the show. Yeah. And we talk, you know, often, you know, Ken will cover some of this, but we talked about, you know, some of the problems with the depiction of women uh, in this season and in Lynch's work in general, you know, and I, I do feel like, you know, a lot of the female characters early on the season seem fairly one dimensional. Uh, there were problems with objectification, especially in, I think the scene of Albert, you know, kind of and the camera, you know, kind of ogling Tammy at the airport early on in the season. Uh, but this this scene made me kind of wonder if some sort of serious, you know, kind of purposeful examination of the nature of misogyny is an important part of this season. Um, you know, this scene here, you know, maybe is a reply to some of the more you know problematic scenes of violence against women. The rest of the series, it did seem to show, 
you know, a deep understanding for, uh, the kind of typical misogynist homophobic encounter and this kind of, you know, astonishing uh, act of revenge, um, against, uh, the male aggressor. Uh, and you know, I, it, it's complicated and, but I do feel like a lot of Twin Peaks does sh- show this real interest in the nature of, of evil and understanding of, uh, to some extent, the, uh, violence against women and the nature of victimization, even if, as I, you know, said earlier, I do think some of its problems with female characters are unresolved. Um, and I do wonder now, you know, if, if Lynch is perhaps self parodying himself, uh, you know, or making fun of himself in, in his involvement with, you know, or objectification involvement with younger women, especially French ones, uh, in the last, uh, couple of episodes. Um, yeah. Uh, but I, I, you know, I wondered if, you know, uh, Sarah also maybe had the frog bug inside of her. I'm also interested in, you know, your idea that it was, it was Lois Duffy. Um, and I was also curious if this was in fact, Sarah's doppelganger, you know, is this, Sarah out at the bars is the other Sarah back home drinking. Uh, and then there was the, the spiritual finger blackened on the left hand. I wondered how much Sarah knew about Leland Laura. Has this been going on a long time? Uh, and then as you noted, JR, she did take her face off to reveal horror darkness, whereas Laura took her face off to reveal, uh, white light. And last thing I was going to say, we did have a number nine bar here, uh, right after Freddie's Beatles reference to the Paul section right, of the day of the right. life in the scene before. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she definitely, uh, Sarah Palmer definitely gives him every opportunity to, uh, to, to, to change his heart and get his heart right. And when he chooses not to do that, the other option is to die. And, uh, and, and Jeff, you know, I think you make some good points there. And I, I think it's strengthened by something you alluded to earlier. And that's the, the gender specificity of what Albert said about Bob in, in saying that he was the evil that men do because Bob, uh, and his ilk, you know, they're, they're all male. They're all about aggression. They're all about appetite. And Sarah in this scene is doing everything she can do short of complete capitulation to walk this situation back. And he keeps escalating it. And, and then she strikes back in self-defense when she really has no other choice. I mean, he has, he has made it very clear that he's going to commit violence against her if she doesn't stop him. And so she stops him. And, and I, I'm like JR. I was not at all sure. You know, she says the things initially to the bartender when she sees him fall over and she seems sincerely to think he just fell over. Uh, but then when she says, yeah, it's a mystery. All right. You know, there's this sort of, of wry denial there that suggests that, that she actually knows, uh, what's going on. Uh, and, and here a, a word for, for Grace Zabriskie, uh, you know, actors like James Dean or, or as Ken pointed out, Constance Towers, um, you know, they popularize this idea that the restrained emotion is more powerful than the released emotion. And in this scene, Grace Zabriskie really shows us how true that is because she could go off on this guy. And, and Sarah Palmer certainly has shown from the pilot forward that she knows how to lose it when the situation warrants. Uh, but her, her even tone, her refusal even to look at the trucker for most of this scene, it really gives this performance uh, a strength and a menace that just wouldn't be there if she started screaming at him. And, and I think this may be Grace Zabriskie's best scene ever as Sarah Palmer. And, and that is saying something because she's had a lot of great scenes, but I do wish that when he, he, uh, you know, made the comment that he made about it being a free country and emphasized a particular syllable, I really wish she had turned to him and said, no, it's not a dictatorship. Yeah. You know, her coolness does remind me of Mr. C 
who doesn't really show any kind of emotion other than, you know, uh, glowering as he punches somebody and with, and kills them. And, and one time we, we've never seen Mr. C lose his cool. Right. Well, maybe when he was, you know, barfing up the Garmin Bosey in his car, I, he was, he was pretty worried at that point, but I don't think we've seen him upset except for right. that point. All right. So we moved to the last scene. We're at the roadhouse, uh, where <clears throat> two women we've never heard about talking about their lives. People we don't know, people we don't care about. I'm really getting sick of this. I don't, I mean, I'm at the point where I don't even want to recap it. Finally, you know, we get some glimmer that maybe this might be relevant to something because somebody talks about Billy, again, a character we've never seen, but is referenced in Audrey's, you know, wherever she is, whoever she's talking about, uh, whomever she's talking about. Uh, She has referenced this guy, Billy. They haven't seen him for a couple days, uh, but one of these two women was the last person to see him. They're at their house when and her mom was there. Maybe her uncle, the reference to the uncle certainly made me think about the zombie fish girl scene uh, from a couple episodes back. Uh, Billy comes running into their house. He, he'd been he jumped over a six foot fence. Uh, his He's bleeding from his nose and mouth, uh, as in Audrey's dream. Her mom, it's suggested, was having an affair with Billy. Her mom's name is Tina. So, yeah, I mean, who the fuck is Tina? <laughs> it's Audrey. No. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We had those references to Nut House and I think that nut place. Uh and then, you know, two just kind of interesting things. The woman in the plaid shirt, Sophie, is played by Lynch's wife, Emily Stoffel. And the other woman, who I think her name is Megan, is an actress named Shane Lynch, who I believe is no relation uh to David Lynch, but I still thought that was interesting. Um and you mentioned, yeah, the uncle, and we also had, you know, as people have pointed out in the Lil sequence in Fire Walk with me, the missing uh, uncle, you know, my mother's sister girl, sister's girl, Leland Palmer also being Maddie's uncle. Um, but yeah, there was all that, there was intense ominous music when Stoffel, the, or, uh, Sophie, uh, the character asked what, uh, Megan's mom's name was. Uh, yeah, I wonder, JR, if this, these roadhouse sequences are perhaps the unimportant parts of the ongoing dream of the show, the parts that fade away from memory when this, when the sleeper awakes. That's all. That's it. We go from here to the final pinecone microphone introduction. They're just throwing these things out like they don't matter anymore. Uh, the introduction, they, Lissy plays the song Wild Wild West. That's the end of the episode. I thought it was good. It was a, a great mix of, of David Lynch weirdness and Mark Frost plotting. You know, I, I think it bodes well for what we've got to look forward to. And I cannot believe it's just going to be a handful of episodes left, just four episodes, in fact. Right. And one of those right. episodes, two of them are they're going to broadcast on the same night. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I can't – I really can't believe it. But, you know, things are coming together. The White Lodge is definitely in the game. Uh, they're actively putting people on the field for what appears to be a final confrontation in Twin Peaks, uh, namely Freddie Sykes, uh, who, you know, I hope will be punching uh, Mr. C back to the Black Lodge. And uh, yeah, this is great. It was a great episode. Really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, and and to me, what I loved is it is by far the the twin peaksiest episode yet. I mean, if you count the Roadhouse as a character, which I do, there literally was not a single scene in this entire episode that didn't include at least one character from the original series. I just I completely loved this, uh, and and my hope for the last four hours is higher than it's been at any point since the premiere. And the weird thing is, it felt like it was starting to come together and make sense. But I actually feel less certain of how it makes sense than I felt before. And, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it, it seems more logically coherent, but less clear to me how it's logically coherent. And, and honestly, having, having experienced it for 20 some odd years now, I actually like that feeling when I'm watching David Lynch's work. And I, looking at the uh, final performance, Lisi, this was by far the most kind of upbeat, positive uh performance at the roadhouse yet and i took this as perhaps a sign the robins are returning and uh the fireman get is getting his unlikely agents uh his, his sort of uh avengers uh in place so yeah i thought one of my favorite episodes up there with, with eight uh one, one of the one of the best so far yeah and i also uh kyle am hopeful uh and uh looking forward uh to some sort of resolution but also sad that as you said jr there's only really four hours left of this uh, just a note, normally we record on Tuesday nights. I, I just wanted to say next week, because for some reason that is not entirely clear to me, I'm taking my family to Oregon along with literally one million other people who don't live in Oregon uh, to try to see this solar eclipse. Oregon! Uh, I, I, I may not <laughs> even that's, – that's great. I'm going to shout that when we cross the border. I don't think I'm going to make it. I, I, may not, I may not even make it back, assuming that I do – um, we're not going to record until Wednesday night, uh, so it'll take a little bit longer for the next episode to come out. I don't know what we're going to do with Ken's stuff. He's he's not going to be in this episode. He's going to be in part 14.5. I may give him a chance to respond to all the stuff in this podcast. I don't know. We'll see. No, we, but we, anyway, we thanks. we're positive. Go he's going to do nothing but negativity, but if you do a special 14.5, please call the episode, and now your moment of Ken. <laughs> That's great. Okay, everybody. Thanks. Uh, we'll uh, we'll be recording next week. All, All right. right. Thanks. Thanks, Jr. Good night.
the judge and jury on.